We're continuing our series in the Gospel according to Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. If you want to find that in your Bible. So, um, I used to be a pretty avid baseball card collector when I was in junior high. And uh, if you know anything about baseball cards, they can have value if they're rare. Sometimes the most valuable cards are the ones with errors on them. And so error cards, because they're extremely rare, because the errors are few, become more valuable than others. Well, this morning, you have an error on your bulletin (laughs) if you grabbed one. This error is totally on me. This error is that... I changed the sermon title yesterday. If you look at your bulletin, it says horizontal disciples. Now, what I didn't mean by that is that we should take our discipleship lying down. (laughs) We'll talk more about horizontal discipleship as we go throughout Matthew. My, My thinking in that was more of seeing Jesus the glorious one, but on this horizontal plane with us, okay? But that wasn't really getting to the heart of what these four verses are about. So I, I changed the title to A Gracious Invitation. If you open up the online bulletin, that would have been there. A Gracious Invitation. Have you ever had one? By one, I mean a gracious invitation. By gracious, I mean something that you didn't have any relationship or worthiness or anything of merit to offer to make that invitation happen. So even if you get invited to a fancy wedding, if that wedding was for your sister, that is kind and appropriate that she invited you, but I wouldn't consider that a gracious invitation. It's almost an expected invitation. Anything that's unexpectedly been gracious to you as an invitation. Once, as a senior in high school, I was invited to um, go to a football one-day camp at Soldier Field. And it was only a handful of CPS football players that were invited there, and I received that gracious invitation. I mean, I played football, so I guess there was some merit in that, but it was nothing of my own that I had done to elicit that invitation. Uh, I once played basketball with Woody Harrelson right after white men can't jump. Uh, That wasn't so much an invitation. He actually kind of like walked onto the basketball court where I was already playing with some friends, and all of a sudden, wow, we're playing basketball with Woody Harrelson. If you don't know who Woody Harrelson is, Google him. <laughs> Maybe you've received some interesting invitations. Like if this week, if, if the White House had called and invited you to a state dinner at the White House, I'm sure you would have told a few people you would probably be kind of buzzing this morning or wondering, should I accept, should I not accept? 
Sometimes sports teams work through that. Am I going to go? What do, I, what do I think about the president? Am I going to go and accept his congratulations on the title we just won? Things like that. But sometimes the thing is, we receive invitations, and, and maybe, you're say, maybe you're struggling to say, I don't know if I've received an invitation like that, where it was just a surprise, and there was no personal connection that would have caused that person to invite me in to do what they invited me to do. Like, if you're a singer, you probably haven't been invited to tour with Taylor Swift. If you're a football player, you probably haven't been invited to catch passes from Patrick Mahomes with Travis Kelsey. And yes, I did just put Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey together for a reason. Again, you can Google that. But see, the thing is, if we would receive an invitation like that, we would consider, whoa, like why did they invite me to do that? I'm not a great singer. I'm not a great football player. I'm not a powerful politician or someone of influence. What would the White House have to do with me? Well, you'd probably consider the character of the one who's been inviting you. The character of that perfect performer or that highlighted inviter. I know I'm not as good as her or him. Will this be something that's for my joy, for my good, or is this going to be like an embarrassing situation? How much more when the perfect performer recognizes you and calls you into a permanent relationship of belonging with him. Of being given a specific vision of shared and assured possibility for your life. Taking who you are and transforming you into he, capital H, he, will make you to be. See, last week we talked about Jesus being enough for us. And that Jesus, as Matthew was showing him, is our perfect king, our perfect priest, and our perfect prophet. But that might seem not only enough for us, he might seem too much for us. Well, this morning, the journey begins with Jesus for four fishermen, and maybe for you and me too. Either newly, or as a renewed reminder of the perfection of Christ and his call to follow him. The Gospel of Matthew has been called by some as a manual for discipleship. We read manuals all the time, some of us. And you might say, I, I don't want Matthew then. A manual? Further instruction? That seems so corporate, so Ikea-like. But that instruction looks entirely different when it is from the hand of the one who reaches out and says, follow me. There is so much more to come. We're in Matthew to be reintroduced to Jesus and to learn 
to grow in what it means to follow him. Lord Jesus, what a wonderful thing that we can talk about you and look at your word, but also know that you are here by your spirit in us, among us. And so we just ask you very forthrightly, oh Jesus, invite us to follow you today. That you would be glorified in, in our lives, in our church, in your life that you've given us and in your church that you've formed. In your name, amen. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. When we last saw Jesus, Jesus had moved from his hometown of Nazareth, about 30 to 40 miles away, to the town of Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee not actually being a sea, but being a freshwater lake. Living in that town of Capernaum, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's see what Jesus does next. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's dig into where this invitation, this gracious invitation is here in this text. Verse 19, Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is Jesus inviting these fishermen to follow him. This isn't usually how it happened. See, Israel had bands of disciples that would walk around the country teaching, following. And they would follow a rabbi who was influential. And that rabbi, their teacher, would lead them. And they would follow whatever he said. They were identified by him. The thing is, typically... It worked the other way around. A young man would be enthralled by the teaching of this rabbi and would come and offer himself as a disciple of that rabbi. That's not what happens here. Jesus is the one who sees Peter and Andrew and calls them. This is a gracious invitation. These brothers have nothing to offer to Jesus. And nothing that Jesus needed. Jesus 
wanted them. He called them. Well, Jesus called them, but as I often say to Eric Williams, this was more than an invitation. I'll sometimes talk to Eric about stuff going on at church, and especially when he was living with us, he would say, is that an invitation or is that more than an invitation? Implying, I really want him to be someplace. It would really be for his good. This was more than an invitation. This was a command. Follow me. All of a sudden, that takes a little different turn. Follow me. See, discipleship assumes obedience and belonging. Discipleship assumes obedience. There is a teacher, and I am going to do what he says and belonging. I now belong to that teacher. After saying, follow me, Jesus gives them a promise And I will make you fishers of men. This is a promise of intention. I intend to do this in you boys. To make you fishers of men. And it is a promise of accomplishment. Following me will mean that you will become fishers of men. Jesus is laying out a vision of their future with him. See, now this goes beyond getting invited to play a show with Taylor Swift. This goes beyond the White House inviting you to come for a state dinner. This is Jesus, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, Not just saying, hey, let's come out and hang for an evening. He is saying, I'm inviting you. I'm commanding, I'm compelling you to come and follow me. I'm inviting you into a relationship that has an end goal in mind. You're belonging with me and you becoming fishers of men. Jesus, in his wonderful way, even makes this understandable for them by using their very occupation to help them understand what he was calling them to. They didn't have to think hard about what it would look like to fish for men. It might have been a bit confusing, but they knew what it was like to fish. They were just fishing for a different catch. These men were going to join with Jesus and the beautiful, compelling, commanding, gracious invitation reality was that Jesus was going to join himself to them. Those are the details of this invitation. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. But why does Matthew use this? 
as the introductory story for Jesus first connecting with his disciples, who are so important, Jesus and the Twelve, throughout the rest of this gospel. Well, for one thing, this is an introduction to the origin story of the apostles. So you're saying, okay, disciples, followers, apostles, what is that? We actually won't get to that in full until Matthew chapter 10. But Jesus draws a distinction, a clear distinction, between apostles and disciples. Apostles, in the Greek it means it's apostolos, that is an ancient Greek way of saying ambassadors. Jesus is going to call some specific men to specifically hear from him and follow him and be formed by him to see him risen from the dead and then given the call to take his message of the good news of his death and resurrection for sinners to the rest of the world. In Ephesians chapter 2 that we read in membership class this morning, it's the reality that our faith is built on the cornerstone who is Christ and the foundation of the church is the prophet's and the apostles. So here's this reality that Matthew is saying to his readers, the guys that you know, or at least you've heard about, the ones whose teaching you are following, early church, first century, these guys were apostles. They saw Jesus. They heard from Jesus. So for Matthew's readers, they're probably not saying, aha, now we too are fishers of men. Let's be fishers of men. No. Reading this, they're at first saying, wow, by God's grace, he chose Peter and Andrew, James and John to be apostles to clearly communicate the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that we, maybe sitting in Antioch or Colossae in 60 or 70 AD, could say, we can trust what we believe because Jesus entrusted the good news to these guys. We are the catch of those fishers of men. Jesus showed them grace and through them, we've been shown grace. But one more thing about this. It's not just their apostleship that we're seeing here. It's also the reality of the Jew and Greek joining in the church. These were four good Jewish boys, we think. They were definitely Jews. We know that from later accounts of them throughout the New Testament. But it's interesting here that Peter and Andrew, though they're Jews, those are Greek names. Petros means rock in Greek. Andrew comes from andros in Greek, man. So you have here in these first four disciples, these first four apostles, 
Greek names being put first. And then John and James, which are Hebrew origin names, being put there too. And so in these first four disciples, these first four apostles, you see foreshadowing of Jews and Greeks being brought together as disciples of Christ. Well, how is it that these four respond to the gracious invitation? What, what's the sequence of events? Well, first of all, they repent. To which you could say, oh, I don't see repentance here. Well, they turned. They left from what they had been and turned in a new direction. They left their fishing, to which you might say, well, is fishing a sin? No. We might think that repentance is something that is always just a response to sin. And in a sense, that's normally how we use it. But repentance, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, is a turning. What would these men be turning from? they would be turning from their expectation as good Jewish boys, from their expectation of a Messiah to the Messiah who is now standing in front of them. See, repentance is about a heart's change of allegiance. And it has ramifications for every single area of life. For Peter and John, fishermen, they were laying down their nets, walking away from that day's catch or for the catches to come. We know later on, Peter was married. What did Peter's wife say about him leaving the nets? We don't know. Fishing was a pretty lucrative business in Capernaum that supplied fish for the entire region. The way of the sea was a trade route that went directly through Capernaum and continued to the west, coming from the east, and vice versa. These four guys weren't necessarily poor fishermen. As long as they were making a catch, they were probably making a pretty good living. Was Zebedee, John and James's dad, upset that his sons had abandoned the family business? Maybe. We don't know. But when the compelling person of Jesus Christ looks at someone and says, Follow me? That is the same powerful word that was spoken into chaos at creation and brought light out of darkness. That brought order to confusion. That created. Did the waters move when Jesus said, follow me? 
Did they get goose pimples up their spines when he said, follow me? Matthew doesn't provide us with, with any of those details. But what we do know is for both sets of brothers, what was their response? Immediately, they left. The voice of God spoke to them. And they left. They looked at their nets, their boat, their father, and they immediately followed Christ. Why? Because this was about so much more than what they were leaving behind. This was about who they were gaining. Nets don't compare. Fish don't compare. Up to that point, they had been following wherever the fish went. In a sense, they were disciples of the catch. And now Jesus, the one who formed the fish by the breath of his mouth, is now saying, you four, follow me. But this is about more than the fish, isn't it? It's about four, though good Jewish boys did not know the full truth of God come in the flesh. So for them to repent was to say, who I once was, what I once was hoping for, what I once thought I knew, but had yet gone unfulfilled, is now fulfilled in him. So even their greatest joys were not fully joyous. Even their greatest catches, their greatest satisfactions were not fully satisfying because they were still waiting. They were waiting in a half-truth that was waiting to be fulfilled. And in front of them, he was. So they repented of who they were and returned to who now defined them, Jesus the Messiah. I would ask you this question this morning. To my brothers and sisters, Are you walking back to the fish in any way? Is there a sense that you've forgotten the majesty, the grace, the compelling reality of having the king of the universe say, you, I know your name. I have chosen you from before the foundation of the earth. My sheep hear their names and they hear my voice and they follow me, Jesus says in John. Have we lost the wonder of the invitation? Have we lost the wonder, the thank you-ness of the grace of God to people who have no merit? Verse 
We're not even good Jewish boys and girls. We have nothing to offer but our sin. And Jesus says, you, I see you, and I invite, I compel, I recreate you to follow me. Yet we can try to be double agents trying to serve two kingdoms. Sometimes wrestling with sin, sometimes, to be honest, not wrestling with it. Sometimes walking in that foggy situation of saying, is this sin, is this not sin? Our flesh trying to justify, saying, it's okay. You can kind of walk on two paths at once. Can I just remind you, it's not about an ethical set of conditions. It is about a king who came to call you, to love you, and to die for you. And he says, I am the way. Follow me. No other path. Because those paths will diverge and you'll get caught. He says, follow me. In me, there's life. In me, there is a purpose, a transformational reality, an identity. Brothers and sisters, our allegiance is to Christ. Our relationship is with Christ. Our fellowship is with Christ. And so to let anything else in there and just kind of say, well, this is my sidecar rolling along on the road behind Christ. I'm just going to keep this. No. No. Any sin that entangles let it fall away. Repent and walk with your king. There's no bargaining with Jesus. Later on in chapter 8, just listen to some who wanted to bargain with Jesus. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has, Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. See, these guys thought they could bargain with the king. They thought they could set the terms of the arrangement. And there was some way they could make discipleship work for them with two parallel paths. And Jesus is like, no, it's me. It's me. Follow me. 
So these four, they repent, they turn. Then they believe. Yes, immediately they left. They heard the call of Christ and they responded. They left to go with him. They saw the cost that they were paying was worthy of the cost for a greater treasure, for a greater king. We see here that their belief is because Jesus, when he calls someone as the good shepherd to a lost sheep, has an effectual call. It always is answered. When Jesus is calling, his unconditional election lands. You did not choose me, but I chose you. He told his disciples in John. And that unconditional election, his choice, then is seen in irresistible grace that is responded to in real, human, believing ways. Jesus says, follow me, I'm going to follow him. Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, I'm going to leave the dead to bury their own dead. We have to grapple with some of this because some of us are holding on to the dead metaphorically. We're holding on to the dead thinking if I can keep that old man with me, it'll be okay. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You follow me. I have life. He says, and you now in me have a grace-compelled life. That's where it comes down to those disciples, those so-called disciples in chapter 8. They try to bargain. And Jesus says, it's not about bargaining. It's not about setting your own terms. It's about me choosing you. So that when we wrestle with assurance, when we wrestle with the reality of who am I in Christ, we can bank on the reality that it wasn't based on my terms based on his he called me he saved me by his grace I've repented by his grace I've believed their repentance their believing leads to them following what does that following entail it proves that repentance and faith were legitimate and it would entail further personal response, repentance and faith in Jesus as these brothers followed him. If you know the rest of the Gospels at all, you know that these guys mess it up over and over and over again. But Jesus in his grace says, I've called you. Keep following me. Keep growing. Keep learning from me. See, following is the fruit of believing Christ. It's the fruit of faith. If you do not believe him, you do not and will not follow him. If you are not following him, it means you have not actually believed him. The life of the Christian is marked by fruit of following I would just say this, Matthew doesn't lay out what all that fruit looks like right here. 
but the rest of his gospel powerfully does. So I would invite you to be back with us every single week as we learn what it looks like to follow him in faith. They repent, they believe, they follow. But what is all of that predicated on? Does anything else happen before that? Yes. They heard. They heard. See, Jesus had already been preaching, it tells us, in Capernaum. And he was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They would have heard him when preaching repentance, that there was judgment to come. There was responsibility for their rebellion to come. So turn. Repent. And then he preaches the kingdom. And he was preaching that to anyone who would listen in Capernaum, apparently. We're going to hear more of that next week in our passage. But having heard all of that, then Jesus shows up on the Sea of Galilee and looks dead at those four guys, looks them in the eye, and says, individually, follow me. The beautiful grace of a broad spreading of, of gospel seed, the good news of the kingdom coming, and the need for humans to turn to the rightful king. But then the beauty of that broad spreading of gospel seed, it then lands in the hearts of these four guys. And immediately they follow him. A compelling warning pointed to a compelling kingdom preached by a compelling Christ. This was not an invitation these four guys could miss. In wrapping up, hear this. This is a primer of like a just a brief clear understanding of how by God's gracious initiative, his invitation Matthew's initial readers, his listeners, became disciples. We heard the word of the apostles. We repented, we believed, and we followed. Brother and sister in Christ, it's how we did too. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles, so we preach Christ unashamedly. Because he is the cornerstone of all we are. Anything we are. And so we became disciples by hearing Christ. By turning to Christ. By believing in Christ and now following Christ. And it continues as we live as disciples. Hearing Christ. Turning to Christ. Believing in Christ and following Christ. And it's how others can become disciples too. By hearing Christ, turning to Christ, 
believing Christ and following Christ. See, church, we are an invited people, graciously invited. And as that grace really sinks in and we rejoice and believe and are thankful for it, more and more, by the grace of God, it overflows in us individually and corporately as a witness to those who don't yet know his grace. We as a church say, follow Christ. Come on, join with us and follow him together. To which I would just ask this question, how are we doing it inviting? Is the grace of God so compelling to us that we pray and look and watch looking for opportunities to say, can I, can I talk to you about Jesus? He's the one I follow. He's the perfect king, priest, and prophet. You can be saved by his name. That's why he came, to save sinners. Lord, give us hearts that are so full of your grace that we become gracious inviters ourselves. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, know that his invitation goes out continually. Turn, believe, follow. I will join you to myself, he says. I will wash you clean of your sin. You'll be adopted into my family. That invitation comes even to us this morning because Jesus prepared the feast for the invitation. He gave his own broken body. He shed his own blood so that we could be invited to the table to take, to eat, and to believe. If you don't know Jesus, would you believe this morning? Turn from your hopes and expectations of what life is supposed to look like and turn to the one who actually has life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for inviting us to trust you inviting us to follow you. Oh, by the work of your spirit, would you do a work in us? Remind us if we need reminding. Bring new birth and illumination if we need to believe for the first time, Lord. But oh God, life is in you. Grace is in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.